Good morning, church. I don't know about you, we can't go much further back than about three generations, so I find this quite fascinating. We're reading this morning from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, and you can follow in your study books if you like. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Well, good morning, everyone. If I haven't met you before, my name is Ben. I'm part of the staff team here. And uh, I wonder how many of you zoned out during that long list of names. <laughs> it's called a genealogy. In fact, we're in church, so let's be honest with each other. If you read your Bible, how many of you skip over these genealogies when you read them? We've got a few honest, a few honest people. My hand's up as well. I've skipped over them before. I think in our culture, we find these genealogies, these long lists of names, boring, irrelevant, we kind of think, why is this in the Bible? Although we may not expect it, these words contain some of the most exciting news ever. Sometimes the best things are unexpected. Can you think of a time where that has been true for you, where there's something unexpected, maybe there's been a surprise, and it's been amazing? I know back in August, uh, my wife, she uh, organized for me to have a day on my birthday, 
And she said, keep this day free. And the night before, she said to me, um, is there anything that you'd like to do tomorrow? I said, oh, maybe we can just keep it relaxed. Uh, maybe we could pack a picnic and go somewhere and just enjoy ourselves. So we got up the next morning and she packed this picnic basket into the car and we were off. But we were driving for quite a long time. I mean, we passed the Glasshouse Mountains exit, so I knew Mullaney and Montville were out of the question. And we were going further and further. I thought, this must be some picnic spot to go this far. So we're driving, and then at some stage she tells me, close your eyes. And so I think, this seems a lot more planned than some spontaneous picnic. And when she tells me to open my eyes, we're going through a roundabout, and I see Sunshine Coast Airport. And I think, what? She's going to take me on like a, a getaway, like a holiday for the weekend. This is amazing. And then we go through the roundabout, and we actually take the third exit away from the airport, and all I see is skydiving Australia. <laughs> I didn't know my eight-month pregnant wife wanted to get rid of me up until this point <laughs> in my life. But anyway, we went in there, and I said yes, and I signed my death waiver, and I went up into that plane, and I jumped out, and it was amazing. It was thrilling. It was awesome. I highly recommend it if you have not done it before. Sometimes the best things are unexpected, and that is certainly true of our passage this morning. Well, today we're kicking off a brand new series called Upside Down Christmas. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be meditating on the story behind Christmas by going through the first two chapters of Matthew's Gospel. And I think this series will be really helpful for us for a couple of reasons. First, there are so many voices telling us so many things about what Christmas is all about. They tell us what we should do and what we should buy and so forth. So I'm just excited to focus on God's voice in Matthew and just, just concentrate on the meaning, the true story behind Christmas because the thing is, our culture's version of Christmas is actually quite exclusive and burdensome. Because you have to have money to participate in all the present buying and the decadent food and drink to feast on. What if you don't have any money to spare? What if you're in debt? Do you just put it on the credit card or do those people miss out on Christmas? Our culture might respond, oh, well, at the end of the day, it's about family anyway. But is it? Is Christmas really about family? What if you're single? What if you're living in a country away from your family? What if your family is horribly broken and this time of year is especially painful for you? Do those people miss out on Christmas? Is Christmas lost for them? Is Christmas really about food and presents and family? Or is it about something more, something better, something more inclusive and generous? For Christians, Christmas is the event on which we celebrate the birth of Jesus, the coming of Jesus. Christmas is about the good news of Jesus available to all, single or married, happy or sad, rich or poor. The true joy of Christmas is available to all of us. And I'm excited to focus on that this Christmas season. The second reason I think this series will be helpful is because it shows us that God has first given us a gift. He's given us a gift better than anything else that you and I have received or ever will receive. Infinitely better than skydiving. He's given us the gift of Jesus. 
And our passage today shows us that this gift, Jesus, is the fulfillment of some overwhelmingly good promises. If we understand what it means when Matthew says Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, we would be sitting on the very edge of our seats to hear about this person. Matthew's genealogy might seem boring or irrelevant to us at first sight, but it is actually packed with good news. Sometimes the best things are unexpected. And there are, in fact, four unexpected things that we'll see in our passage this morning. Four things, and if you're a note taker, here's what they are. An unexpected beginning, an unexpected king, an unexpected background, and an unexpected blessing. First, let's look at an unexpected beginning. Matthew begins his gospel in an unexpected way by giving us a large genealogical list of Jesus' heritage. And the truth is, the only reason Matthew's opening lines are so odd to us is because we are so foreign to Matthew's time and culture. We're what the Bible calls Gentiles. We're 21st century Gentiles, which is Bible speak for non-Jews. Whereas Matthew was a first century Jew. In their culture, genealogies were hugely important. They were so important because most Jews believed that their favor before God was secured by their family heritage, by their bloodline. And it explains why John the Baptist has a go at the religious leaders back in their time for relying too heavily on this belief. He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Evidently, the religious leaders felt secure because they were related to Abraham, a father of the faith. Genealogies were very important to the Jews. The genealogy was kind of like our CV or resume. What do we do with our resume? We put all the very best things about ourselves in there and we tend to minimize or totally exclude the negative things about ourselves. Their genealogies were much the same. Your credibility and status were based on your family heritage. So while the genealogy of Jesus might seem like an odd way for Matthew to begin his good news, his witness, his account of Jesus, it wasn't for a first century Jew. And in fact, it's not the only unexpected beginning that we see in our passage. There's another one in the first verse where it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. The word genealogy there comes from the Greek word genesis. Genesis. It might remind you of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and so it should. Matthew seems to be using this word to tell us that Jesus is the second Genesis for creation, for humanity. Jesus is a new beginning. He is renewing our world, and he is creating a new people for himself. That's big stuff. That's a big claim. Most of us, however, associate Christianity with small things. We associate it with our individual happiness, self-improvement, one day of the week, aka Sunday. Secular Australia seems to think of Christianity as out of touch with reality and facts and as kind of an odd alternative movement of people who have always gone to church because their families have or because they like religious tradition. But Christianity is far bigger than all of those ideas. 
Christianity has world-transforming significance. That's what Matthew is claiming here in his eyewitness account. He's making the claim that Jesus is God's new beginning for the world. That Jesus is the one who has begun a second genesis. The one who is creating a new human community where there is no division, no racism, no hate, no jealousy, no envy. He is doing something new and he is transforming our world. The birth of Jesus marked a new beginning for us and for our world. This is what Matthew tells us in his unexpected beginning. So don't mistake Christianity to be concerned with small things. The Bible and Matthew claim that it's about something much larger. The second thing that we see in Matthew's genealogy is an unexpected king. An unexpected king. Matthew highlights this particular truth all throughout his genealogy. God made a promise to his people Israel to send a Messiah, a king, who would deliver them from their enemies. And this promise was especially associated with King David, who lived about a thousand years before this was written. We just talked about David, actually, in our, in our series that we just finished in 2 Samuel. And I wonder if you guys can remember when Pastor Adam took us through 2 Samuel chapter 7, which was this high point in David's life. It's where God said to David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's a huge promise. One of David's sons would rule forever. And 1,000 years later, Matthew writes down, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. But Matthew doesn't stop his announcing there. He wants to make sure that we, we really hear this. In fact, I think Matthew's really excited about this claim, and he emphasizes it as much as he can in our passage. For example, he uses David's name a lot in our chapter. In fact, David's name is repeated in our chapter more than in any other chapter of the New Testament. You can see on the screen there, our chapter is highlighted in red and the rest of them are chapters from the New Testament which contain David's name in them. He uses it a lot. And another thing that Matthew does is reverse the order of the names in verse one. You would normally expect Abraham to come first because he is at the beginning of the genealogy, but it is actually David's name that appears first. All of these things show us that Matthew is, is trying to get across to us that Jesus is the promised son of David, that he is the king who would establish David's throne forever. And there are so many rich promises associated with this person in the Old Testament. And they tell us that the Davidic king, that the Messiah will reign forever and ever, that he will reign with righteousness and justice, that he will rule over all the peoples of the earth, that he will establish peace over the creation, that he would be the embodiment of God himself. Big stuff. And the list could go on. To claim that Jesus was the son of David was a big deal. It was an exciting claim that would have stopped any Jew in their tracks. But what makes Jesus' claim to kingship so unexpected? Why was he an unexpected king? Well, in short, he flipped the Jews' expectations upside down and inside out. 
They had expected a Messiah who would destroy their Gentile enemies and establish Israel as the ruling nation in the world. And in the first century, they were under Roman occupation, so the immediate expectation would have been for Jesus to rally the people of Israel and to defeat Rome. But what makes Jesus' claim to kingship so unexpected is the fact that he didn't do this. He reversed those expectations. Even today, Jesus still doesn't seem to fit the picture of God's chosen king who would save the world. I mean, he lived centuries ago in the Middle East and only lived until his early 30s. How can he really have been a world-changing ruler? But Matthew wants us to know that even though we wouldn't expect God's king to look like Jesus, that he is. He is the king that God promised. It's in him that God is rescuing the world. And don't miss that because he did things in ways in which we wouldn't expect. In fact, God loves to accomplish accomplish things in ways that we wouldn't do them to put to shame our human wisdom, to put to shame our puny intelligence. And Matthew also challenges our expectations by the way he arranges Jesus' genealogy. So it's not only that Jesus didn't do what Jews expected him to, but Matthew also arranged his genealogy in a surprising way because his resume not only... contains exciting promises, but it's also filled with shameful scandals. Jesus, the king, came from a very unexpected background. It's our third point, an unexpected background. You see, Jesus was born into a long line of misfits. In fact, Matthew goes out of his way to emphasize this as well. For example, in the first century, it was very rare to include women in the genealogy. The sad fact was that they simply weren't important enough in the ancient world. But Matthew mentions five women, including Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. But these were names you wouldn't put in your CV if you were trying to impress Jewish people. Any Jewish person reading this would have been shocked that Matthew would highlight these particular women. Take, for example, Tamar. Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute, and waited by the roadside for her father-in-law, Judah, to pass by. When Judah passed by, he stopped and he decided to acquire her services, and she ended up bearing the children of her father-in-law. Matthew points out that these are Jesus' relatives. Tamar, the one who had incestuous relations with her cheating father-in-law. Rahab was the second woman included in the list. She was as outsider as you could get. You see, there were different categories of outsider in in the Jewish world, and Rahab basically fit into all of them. She was a moral outsider. She was a prostitute, which was against the law in Israel. She was a gender outsider. As I mentioned before, uh, women were mistreated and disregarded in the ancient world. And she was an ethnic outsider. She was a Canaanite. She wasn't even Jewish. Yet Matthew highlights the fact again that Jesus is related to her. Now, Ruth was actually quite a moral character. She was a good woman who stood beside her mother-in-law when things got tough. But she was still an outsider. She was an ethnic outsider, a Moabite. She wasn't a Jew. Bathsheba isn't actually mentioned by name, but this is probably a dig at David more than anything that is to do with her. Because David abused his power and took Bathsheba and slept with her. In fact, Bathsheba was already married to one of David's best friends, and David got her husband killed to cover up what he had done. 
And Matthew purposely highlights this scandal by saying David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Jesus' resume was full of scandals and outsiders. Any Jew reading this would have been shocked and appalled. I mean, why disrespect the messianic claims of Jesus by bringing up all of this dirty laundry? Why include this in his resume? I mean, God could have completely skipped this human process. If God can do anything, he could have created another human without Mary or Joseph being involved at all. But God is so humble that he chose to enter into this family line. In fact, he highlighted the outsiders in his resume. He's so different to us. He turns our ways and values upside down. We hide the bad bits in our resumes, but Jesus highlights them. He associates himself with all kinds of outsiders and misfits. When Jesus constructed his resume, he didn't say, oh, Matthew, uh, make sure you kind of just exclude a few of those people. Don't highlight that. That's, that's embarrassing. No, he completely rejects that way of thinking. And he associates himself with the shame of his family line. He says, oh, make sure you include Rahab. I love that woman. Oh, and I want people to know that I care about Ruth. Include her as well. And I, and I want Bathsheba to be in there. She might have been used and abused, but I want to honor her, include her in my resume. You might be sitting here this morning and you might feel like a total outsider to God. Maybe your conscience is weighed down by the past. Maybe you're keenly aware of your mistakes and you don't feel close to God. Maybe you feel like he's ashamed of you, that he'd rather avoid you. But the way Jesus has set up his family resume shows us that he won't let anything separate us from his love. If you're a believer, he's not embarrassed of you. He loves you. He loves to associate himself with you. He loves to to be beside you, to be with you, to include you in his family line. And if you're not yet a believer, Jesus is moving towards you today with the eyes of love. He wants you in his family line as well. He's not standoffish. He's not waiting for you to do something for him. No, he's, he's already made the first move. In Jesus, all he, he came from heaven to earth to draw near to you and to me. And he has dealt with all of our past sins and mistakes. He gives every one of his children a seat at his table. Timothy Keller says, In Jesus Christ, prostitute and king sit down as equals. And at Christmas, we remember that Jesus entered into our world to take our shame and offer us honor. He is so happy to be associated with you and me. He loves us. And at Christmas, we remember that he came for all sorts of people. He came especially for those people who were outsiders in the culture, who were looked down upon, who are excluded and rejected. The King of Kings invites us to leave behind the class systems, the badges of honor, all the other things that our world values and become a part of his family line. It's a free gift. It's the ultimate gift that lies behind Christmas. And this is why within this church, there will never be divides over social class or skin color or level of education or the clothes we wear. Jesus' church, our church, is to be different from the world. So it doesn't matter who you are or where you've come from, In Jesus Christ, prostitute and king sit down as equals in this place. Matthew 1 verse 17 shows us that Jesus is an unexpected beginning. 
He is creating a new people and a new world. He is an unexpected king. He is the promised Messiah associated with rich and wonderful promises, but he didn't do things the way we would have expected. He turns all of those expectations on their heads, and in fact, he came from a totally unexpected background. He includes all sorts of different outsiders in his resume. He associates himself with them. And the final thing that this genealogy shows us is that Jesus came to bring us, bring people like us especially, an unexpected blessing. An unexpected blessing. Because we are so far away from Matthew's context, we don't understand how weird it is that people like us would be blessed by Jesus. But all throughout the New Testament, there are tensions being worked out between Jews and Gentiles, between Israelites and the rest of the world, people like us. Kind of like, so because God's people, before Jesus, God's people were primarily made up of Jews. Kind of like how Hinduism is especially associated with India today. In fact, from what I've heard, to be Indian is generally to be Hindu. It's part of the national identity. And the first century, faith in the one God, Yahweh, was part of the national identity for Jews. But Jesus came not only to bless his own people, but people like us. And this is made clear by Matthew's repeated mentioning of Abraham. He comes up three times in our passage and listen to what God promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 verse 3. He says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. As Paul says in Galatians 3, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, people like us, and announced this gospel in advance to Abraham, which said, all nations will be blessed through you. And in Ephesians, Paul says, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus came to bless people who were complete and total outsiders. He came to bless Jew and Gentile. He came to bless Europeans and Asians and South Americans and Africans. Our culture might tell us that we need money and family to enjoy Christmas. Most of the Jews might have told you that you had to be one of Abraham's descendants to get in on God's blessings. But Jesus came to bless everyone who believes in him. That's why the joy of Christmas is available to all of us. In fact, he is calling every single one of us to himself here this morning. He wants to bless you, church. He wants to bless you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he is God's king? That you need to hand over the reins of your life to him? Do you trust that he offers you a new beginning? that he is creating a new world and inviting you into it? Do you realize that he will accept you no matter what your background or flaws are? None of that matters in Christ. And you know why? Because his way of blessing you and me was not by way of a passing kind word. It was ultimately by submitting himself to death on a cross. See, the cross is so dark and horrific because it represents what we would have gone through if Jesus had have left us in our sins. But Jesus removed that barrier by suffering the consequences for those things on our behalf on the cross. You know, he went even further than simply 
associating himself with us on a resume. He actually took our brokenness, everything upon himself at the cross and died a God-forsaken death in it so that he could bless every single person who would put their faith and trust in him. Can you believe that? What kind of person would go through all of that just to bless others? Well, the answer is God did. The God who created the galaxies and our world. The God who speaks a word and planets are formed. The God who gives us sunsets and lakes and mountains. The God who creates new life in a mother's womb. The God who created us out of dust. This God, this God allowed himself to be crucified by people he created. Sometimes the best things are unexpected. Let me pray. Lord, we just want to slow down before you right now. Thank you for your word. Lord, we often find things in there that are unexpected. Thank you for your good news that Jesus, you came 2,000 years ago, that you were God's son. You were the king. You were the son of Abraham. You came to bless people like us. You came to establish God's rule over the world. Lord, we honor you in this place this morning. We honor you in this place. And Jesus, we thank you. We thank you. We would not have imagined up a God who would stoop so low, stoop so low as to embrace human weakness, to suffer in this world, to die on our behalf. But you did. And Lord, this is why we are here today. This is why we we can call ourselves children of God. This is why we worship you. And Lord, we bless your name in this place. Would you fill our hearts with this joy on Christmas? This Christmas season, Lord, set our hearts and minds on you and what you did, Jesus, and the way in which you came, the unexpected way in which you came, Lord. May that be on our hearts May that be our meditation. May that shape our gatherings and our celebrations, Lord. We love you and we bless you. And we pray this through the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, please stand with us as we sing our praise to the name. <laughs>